You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn, first of all, our Old Testament reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 51, the verses 11 to 16. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men, the sons of men who are but grass? That you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. That you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. For where is the wrath of the oppressor? The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. They will not die in their dungeon, nor will they lack bread. For I am the Lord, your God who churns up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. I have put my words in your mouths and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. Then we turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And then finally we turn to Romans chapter 8, the verses 12 to 17. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes this in Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life? 
and death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, did you know that the origin of the Heidelberg Catechism has a lot to do with a fight? With an actual knock him out, drag him down fight in a worship service. The common story about the origin of the Heidelberg Catechism is that the Elector Frederick III, the ruler of the Palatinate, wanted a catechism to be written that would educate the people of his realm in the new reformational truths. And that's true, but it's not the whole truth. There is more to the history and the beginnings of the Heidelberg Catechism. It has to do with a professor of theology called Thomas Hesshaus and a deacon by the name of Willem Klebitz. Hesshaus held to some very high Lutheran, almost Roman Catholic views with regard to the Lord's Supper. Klebitz, however, held to a more Calvinistic view and even wrote a thesis for the University of Heidelberg defending his view and as a result was awarded a Bachelor of Arts degree. And all of this happened when Thomas Hesshaus was away. And when he got back to Heidelberg and heard about Klebitz being awarded a degree, he went ballistic. He ranted and he raved against Klebitz and against the university for giving him a degree. And he even excommunicated Klebitz on his own without even bothering to consult the consistory. Now, as this controversy was raging, Frederick III was away. And when he got back and when he heard the sorry tale of the feuding going on between his professor of theology and the deacon in the church, he summoned them to appear before him, and he demanded that some kind of reconciliation take place and that it be written down. Well, in due time, a statement was agreed upon, it was written, it was reached, and it appeared that peace had returned to the realm, only not quite. For the following Sunday, Hesshaus was to administer the Lord's Supper in the Holy Spirit Church, the main church in Heidelberg, still there today, and the deacon Clebitz was supposed to assist him. But when Klebitz came near to the altar rail and started to administer the sacraments, Hesshaus 
grabbed the cup from his hands filled with wine, and in no time at all, the fight was on. Indeed, the whole congregation, including the elector of Frederick III himself, was treated to the sight of a Donnybrook at the front of the church, before the altar and below the pulpit. Well, that was it for Frederick. He summoned them both to appear before him, and he dismissed them both. Hess-Hass was told to leave the kingdom immediately. Klebitz left shortly thereafter, although history relates that he probably left it with a letter of recommendation from the elector because he was the minor party in the dispute. But nevertheless, dismissing the disputants was not all that Frederick III decided to do. He also decided that he needed some new men, and that along with some new men, he needed a new catechism. A catechism that would not only take care of the educational needs of his people, but a catechism that would also bring peace, theological peace, to his troubled realm. And so it can be said that in some ways, a fight gave way to a catechism. And really, what a catechism it is, the Reformation era saw hundreds, if not thousands, of catechisms being written. Almost every reformer, as well as would-be reformer, wrote at least one, if not more. But still, in the end, none of them has received a more enthusiastic reception than the Heidelberg Catechism. It's known far and wide for its sensitive pastoral style, for its beautiful answers, for its sharp and penetrating questions, and for its comprehensive nature. It's a masterpiece among catechisms. Yes, and part of the reason for all of this also has to do with the beginning. It has to do with that warm, consoling, famous opening question and answer, what is your only comfort in life and even in death? I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, my only comfort, a work of the triune God, bought by the Son's blood, as we shall see, kept according to the Spirit's or the Father's plan, sealed using the Spirit's power. Well, beloved, you can see that comfort is the note in which the Heidelberg Catechism begins, And you might be forgiven for thinking, well, little wonder, if I were Frederick III and had just gone through this whole sorry debacle with Hessos and Klebitz, I too would be in need of comfort. Only the comfort that the Catechism opens with is not that sort of comfort. It's not comfort in the sense of being or making yourself comfortable. It's not just about ease and peace of mind and rest. No, it's much more comprehensive than that. For the comfort used here is a very all-encompassing kind of word. It's meant to deal with all sorts of troubles and problems and sorrows. Indeed, it's supposed to be an antidote, a counterweight 
to all the burdens, the hardships, the uncertainties that life throws at us. And remember as well that when the Catechism was written, it was the 16th century. In other words, it was a time in which poverty, disease, and hunger always seemed to be very close at hand. It was a time when infant mortality was high and most of your babies never survived and many of your children never reached adulthood. And as well, it was a time of permanent warfare, it seemed, in Europe, where prince was always battling against prince and emperor against pope and nation against nation. Oh, and one more thing, it was a time of great religious turmoil. Roman Catholics versus Protestants. And both of them versus the advocates of the Radical Reformation. Little wonder, therefore, that people at that time needed something to offset all of this, something to calm their hearts and to still their souls. And, of course, not just people then, but you can say people in every day and age need it. Also, we need it. How often are our lives not affected by by sickness? How often is there not these days family trouble or marriage woes or or job pressures or all kinds of other misery and problems that arise in our life? And so all of us know something about the struggle and the woe and the difficulties of daily living. And in the midst of all of that, where does one look? Where does one find strength in the midst of chaos? Where does one find an anchor while living in a turbulent world? Is there even something? Is there a rock to stand on? Is there a shelter to creep into? Is there a refuge to hide in and to feel secure in? Well, beloved, the writers of the Catechism... They could have asked the question, what is your comfort in the midst of all of this? But notice that's not good enough. They don't want to know about all kinds of comforts. They don't want to know about all kinds of antidotes. No, they want to know that one antidote, that one comfort that soars above all the rest. What's your only comfort? What's your unique comfort? What's your greatest comfort? And even more than that, what is it that comforts you and enables you to go on in life when you face life's troubles and even, even when you face deaths? What is it? What's your answer? And in some ways, the answer is a surprise. For the answer is not take a little pill. And neither is the answer, well, repeat some kind of special mantra that you recycle over and over again. And neither is the answer by joining a certain movement or philosophy. And it's not about tapping into hidden resources, be they in the world or be they within yourself. 
Now the answer is in none of the above. The answer is, however, in a relationship. And what relationship with whom and in what way? Well, the answer is in being relationship with Jesus Christ. It lies in being connected, one can say, to the greatest person in all the world, in being tied to him, united to him, linked to him, rooted in him. And even more specifically, it lies in the confession. Oh, I know that we often associate that word confession with something that they still do in the Roman Catholic Church, or we link it to something written on paper and taught in the church. However, this is a confession that comes out of the mouth, but a confession that ultimately comes out of one's heart. And what is it that lives in one's heart? It is the deep and glorious conviction that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So where is this comfort? What is this comfort? It's about belonging but then a very special, unique kind of belonging. It's actually about slavery. It's about being a slave, becoming a slave of Jesus Christ. It's about belonging to him, lock, stock, and barrel, body, and soul. It's about belonging to him today, tomorrow, and forever. But why? Because he is my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In short, he has and does and will save me. He's my rescuer, my liberator, my redeemer. And alas, this is also something that people will say about a king or a guru or a cult leader. They will put their hope and their trust in him. But what happens? Nothing in the end but disappointment and disillusionment. And so how do we know that Christ is different? Well, the answer, beloved, is in the what and the means and the consequence. First, there is the what. What does Christ save me from? The biblical answer is simple and rather direct. He saves me from my sins. This is the message that the angel Gabriel brought to Joseph when he says, you're going to call his name Jesus because, because he will save his people from their sins. And what is sin? Sin is cancer. Moral, physical, spiritual cancer. Sin ruins and destroys everything, health, marriage, 
family, work, happiness, you name it. Whenever something goes wrong in your life or my life, we can always trace it back to sin. The sin's power or sin's brokenness. Nothing destroys like sin. Nothing creates more misery than sin. Sin is the what? But then Jesus Christ comes along and who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who supplies the means. What means? It's called blood. Blood, beloved, is the answer to sin. But not just any kind of blood. No, only the blood of Jesus Christ can counteract sin, can combat it and defeat it and remove it. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can redeem you from it. It's as the Apostle Peter said long ago, but it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, states that Christ Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice Of himself. You see, it's blood. But only one kind of blood can get rid of sin. It has to be the blood. The perfect cleansing blood. Of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it precious. So, beloved, we have the what and the means, but what about the consequence? Well, the consequence, beloved, is, the Catechism points out for us once again, according to the Scripture, the consequence is freedom. The Catechism says that he has set me free from all the power of the devil. And take note, it says that Christ has not just set us free from the devil, but from also all of his power. And maybe you realize as well that the power of the devil is everywhere in one form or another. It's present in my own life and in the sin that still dwells there. It's present in the world and in all the sin that dwells there. No matter where we look or where we turn, We meet enslaved people, people caught in the grip of addiction, evil, greed, selfishness, pride, lust, and violence. But then Christ comes, and in Christ, the gospel says, in Christ there is freedom. He deals with my sin. He deals with my enslaver. He deals with my crooked world. 
He sets me free so that I can be again what I am meant to be, namely a child of God. Made in the image and likeness of God. In short, nothing. And no one works a greater wonder. Through the shedding of his blood and the sacrifice of his life, Christ gives me life. Life, wholeness, and happiness. But you know, Christ also does more than just give me life or new life. He sees to it that I am also kept in this new life. And how does he do so? Well, he does it by following the Father's will and working out, you can say, the Father's plan. For truly, Christ is not alone in this business of dispensing true and only comfort. God the Father is there too. A moment ago, we read from John chapter 6. And what do we learn there? Well, we learn, surely, one thing, and that is that this, this comfort of ours is a very deeply grounded comfort. And indeed, we learn there that it is wonderful beyond imagination. For look, when we first embrace this only comfort, we think, oh, we have found it, we have done it, we have discovered it. But then, in John 6, Jesus teaches us to look deeper. And he speaks about the Father having given him a certain number of people. And he keeps on referring to those the Father has given me. To those he has given me, he says. Why, you cannot escape the conclusion. That the Father has entrusted to Jesus Christ, his Son, a certain number of people. And what is Jesus to do with them? Well, John 6, 37, he's not to drive them away. John 6, 38, he is to do God's will for them. Verse 39, he's not to lose any one of them. And also in verse 39, he is to raise them up at the last day. In other words, you can hear it. Jesus is to keep them whom the Father has given him to the end. And he's to bring them. To glory. That's the Father's plan. That's the the Son's task. Safe keeping. It's called. And now when you think of that, isn't that a most glorious thing? Here we've been bought with the most precious commodity in all the world. Even more priceless than gold at a thousand dollars an ounce. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. 
But we have not been bought and then left to wonder whether or not we are going to stay bought. Now the gospel says there's certainty here. There's security here. And we need that. We all need that. Imagine that someone comes along and gives you a priceless gift. Maybe it's a huge glittering diamond. Or a splendid Rembrandt painting. Or what about a powerful Lamborghini? If you don't know what a Lamborghini is, ask one of your sons or grandsons. I guarantee you your first reaction will be one of sheer joy. You can't stop looking at it, admiring it, thinking about it, wanting to drive it. But then... After a while, questions arise. Uncertainty creeps in. And and what is it all about? Well, it's about now protecting and preserving this priceless thing that you have received. You see, having it is, is one thing, but keeping it, especially keeping it secure, is another The one brings wonder, the other brings worry. And it can be that way about our comfort too. Now that we have it, how do we know that we're going to keep it? After all, we live in a world in which nothing, nothing seems to last, does it? Health doesn't last, money doesn't last, happiness doesn't last, life itself doesn't last. Eventually it all fades away. Our beloved, in such a world of uncertainty and insecurity, the Father gives a sacred charge to His Son. He gives him a people. And he says to his son, keep them, preserve them, watch over them, and lead them safely home to glory. And he does. He does precisely that. Oh, and should doubts arise, don't worry. For the son has another weapon in his arsenal, and it's called sealing. Ephesians 1 tells us about it. It says, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit can be compared to a seal. What's a seal? In the ancient world, the seal was often used to mark ownership. For example, if you had a special, expensive collection of vases that came from Ephesus, 
Well, then you might in those days, well, put your seal upon those special vases because if they were stolen, they could be traced back to you and hopefully returned to you as well. You see, these seals that you put on things proved that you were the property of this person. That they were his possession, his valuables. And the scripture says in the same way, the Holy Spirit is given to those who belong to God and have been set apart by God. Paul says of the Ephesian believers that they have been marked, embedded with the Spirit. And in Romans 8, Paul says that you can know exactly what is the property of Jesus Christ because these are the people who cry, Abba, Father. And by their words and by their lifestyle, they show that they are God's children. These people have been marked, set aside. They show that they have the Spirit. And they know they have the Spirit. They haven't received the spirit that makes them a slave again to sin. No, they have received the spirit of sonship. The spirit convicts and convinces them. They know what Christ has made them and given them. They know where they're headed. The great encourager, enabler, empower lives in their hearts. They've been marked by the Spirit. And the result? The result is they live an upbeat life. Answer one of the Catechism concludes by asserting that such children are heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Notice they are not grudgingly willing. Neither will they be ready, perhaps, sometime, maybe in the future, to live for him. No, they're heartily willing now. At this moment, they have a heart full of willingness. They're ready not someday, but today. You see, there is... An enthusiasm here that is attractive and contagious. So overjoyed are God's people to belong to Christ that they don't fill their lives with complaints and negatives and hesitations and feet dragging. No, they get on with the serving. They wrap themselves, as it were, in this only comfort. And they thrive. And they blossom. And they glow. Do you recall the Ethiopian eunuch? You can find him in Acts chapter 8. And do you know what it is? The last thing that the scripture says about this somewhat mysterious man... It says, and he went on his way rejoicing. 
I think that's a beautiful description of how to go through life. Imagine that, going on your way, rejoicing. Not complaining, rejoicing. Not doubting, rejoicing. Not with hesitation, but with rejoicing. And how could he do this? Well, because he had found Jesus. And he had been baptized into the name of Jesus. And he knew that he now belonged to Jesus Christ, totally and always. And once you know yourself totally to belong to Jesus Christ, nothing else in this life really seems to matter anymore. He was now living in the only comfort zone. And because of that, he could go on his way rejoicing. Beloved, can the same thing be said of you? As you go through life, are you living in the only comfort zone as well? Are you able to go on your way rejoicing no matter what? What the obstacles, what the burdens, what the trials. May God help you to do that. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.